I often repeat that the data scientist must think like an artist when finding a solution, when creating a piece of code. But of course, also an artist, imagine an architect, for example, has to know physical laws because otherwise a dome will collapse. So it's clearly hard science, but it's not purely hard science. And there is room for creativity, a lot of room for creativity. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash a-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is an experienced and goal-oriented leader with wide expertise in the management of artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, and data science. His experience spans projects for a wide variety of industries, including healthcare, B2C, military industries, and Fortune 500 firms. His main interests include machine learning and deep learning, data science strategy, and digital innovation in the healthcare industry. He's currently leveraging his interests and expertise as the head of data science in a pharmaceutical corporation. However, you may recognize him from the many best-selling machine learning books he's published, including Python, Advanced Guide to Artificial Intelligence, Fundamentals of Machine Learning with Scikit-Learn, and Hands-On, Unsupervised Machine Learning with Python. Today, he's here to talk about his most recent book and shares his insights into best practices for data science and machine learning. So please, help me in welcoming our guest today, author of Mastering Machine Learning Algorithms, Giuseppe Bonacorso. Giuseppe, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate you coming on to the show. My pleasure, Harpreet. I'm really glad to be here. Oh man, I'm so, so excited to get into our conversation today. We've got a lot to cover, but first let's start kind of at the beginning here. If you could just talk to us about how you first heard about data science and what drew you to the field. This is a very interesting question because I never heard of data science when I heard about what we now call data science. The names were quite different. So before starting my university master, I remember I found two books in a bookstore, one about fuzzy logic and another one about neural networks. And I bought them all and I started reading them because I was very attracted by the field of mind and the connections between mind and brain. So as I did 
didn't have the means for uh, working with biological experiments and I loved computer science, I immediately tried to re replicate the experiments and I found them so interesting, so stunning that I decided that that would be my career. Uh, in that period, there were just a few resources so it was very difficult sometimes to find the right publications. But after reading these books, I started contacting other people. I started buying other books and I started moving in the direction of learning how neural networks could solve many problems. But I want to be honest, in that period, neural networks were not considered like they are today. So it was a, a real new world, but without so many people supporting it. So it was a very interesting challenge for me. That's an interesting point to bring up because my next question for you is going to be how much more hyped has machine learning become since you first broke into the field? In that period, it wasn't hyped at all. Consider that I remember a conversation when choosing my some subjects at university and there was artificial intelligence. And some people told me, why are you picking artificial intelligence? It's not so interesting. The reality is that in that period, the research was more on other topics and the computational power was not enough to run very big models. So some people just decided not to waste their time in uh, something that was seen as more theoretical. Nowadays, uh, the situation is completely different. It, it's an, a natural process because now there is also an inflation. There are so many applications that almost everybody can talk about AI and can talk about AI applications. So it's exactly the opposite. I honestly remember that I had some conversation with professors who didn't believe that neural networks could be so powerful one day. They considered them quite limited. In fact, what happened was that after a few years, there were the first examples of convolutional neural networks applied to more complex problems. And that was a real revolution. It changed completely the mindset. And in that moment, the hype started. And clearly, clearly it was a progressive process. And nowadays, we are probably around the peak of this process. And where do you see the field of machine learning headed in the next two to five years? Well, I see clearly diffusion. Nowadays, more and more companies are becoming interested in machine learning, data science, AI. They want machine learning for sometimes with a real awareness because they can identify problems that can be solved using machine learning. Sometimes they want to find ways to apply machine learning because it's also very trendy. So I think that more and more sectors will be involved in the field. And I think that Nowadays, if we just try to compile a list, I mean, just to have an idea of the companies, I don't know which companies can be easily excluded. The majority of big companies and also medium-sized companies adopt AI. Um, the reason is also because the costs are going down. They are cheaper and cheaper. And there is also more availability, for example, of pre-trained models and automatic tools. So the need of very high specialized people that also are represented a cost for the company is sometimes considered not necessary. I don't support this opinion, but this is also the reality. So I think that in the next five years, let's say, there will be a data scientist probably in each company, even the smallest ones. And in what ways do you think that data science, machine learning, and AI will have the biggest positive impact on society in the next two to five years? 
Well, this is indeed very difficult to say because I think the impact can be either positive or negative simply uh, because data science or AI or machine learning are technologies, are tools. So for every technology, you can apply it for positive things and negative things. It's very difficult to say something will never happen while other things will happen. For sure, I think that I belong to the healthcare sector. Um, for example, I think that healthcare is already improving the efficiency of many processes. We have read in the news, for example, about the, the speed of drug discovery. You know, drug discovery is normally a very complex process where it's necessary to analyze lots of sequences. So AI helped to solving this problem in a very quick way, avoiding very high costs. So I think that the positive impact is uh, in the application, for example, of deep models uh, to solve more and more complex tasks. But on the other side, I think also that uh, this extra complexity can represent a threat, a threat for the possibility of negative use. I make always the same example. It's just like Nobel with dynamite. When he discovered it was considered a revolutionary tool, but at the same time, he understood that it could be used to kill people. Or the same is for a blade that can be either a scalpel to, for surgery or a knife to kill another human being. So clearly, there are possibilities which are strictly related to the complexity that AI is reaching. Um, in some cases, NLP, for example, is becoming more and more precise, and it's possible to substitute human beings in many NLP tasks, and this can be considered a threat for many jobs, for example. The same for vision, for surveillance. Nowadays, uh, it's possible to have uh, very good surveillance systems which are completely based on AI. This is also a negative side we have to consider. Automation will reduce the need of human beings for repetitive tasks. This is probably a negative side. On the other side, there are many positive aspects related to the fact that now it's easier to use these tools and it's easier to change the professionalities of many employees, giving them the opportunity to focus on more creative activities, for example. So as practitioners of data science and machine learning, and as we kind of move to this vision of the future that we have, what are some things that we should be concerned with the way that we practice data science so that we can mitigate the negative effects that you're speaking about? One thing that I consider absolutely essential is the real knowledge behind data science. Data science is not something that can be learned in a week or even in a month. It's a real topic with a lot of theory behind, and it's very important for the practitioners to have clear ideas about what they do. And this is also very important considering, for example, the diffusion of automatic tools. Whenever you use an automatic tool and you have no idea of what you're using, you are just pressing buttons, for example, a training and explained to use a, a model and you always repeat this operation mechanically, the result is clearly a failure because you can never manage to solve complex problems. So I think that fundamental step for any company is to improve the knowledge of the practitioners and the practitioners themselves 
have to pretend to study, to learn more and more, to never stop, because the only way they can remain necessary. And this is the only way to create a progression in this field without avoiding that the field's defaults in uh, just applying the same techniques, uh, whatever the result it is. And another thing is, is the fact that sometimes unaware data scientists who are limited to work on just data science, they have no idea about the fact that a company is made up of layers and uh, sometimes the C-level or the top management is completely far from their word. The responsibility for creating a connection, the responsibility for helping these people create a more advanced environment relies on data scientists, clearly on data science managers, but it's very, very important to create this awareness and to propagate this awareness to increase the commitment. Because without this commitment from the C-level and from the top management, in particular in the largest companies, all the applications will be always limited and many possibilities will be lost forever. So this is an area of concern if I consider, for example, companies where sometimes they want to go in this direction just because they want to be trendy. Trendy because uh, this is something that nowadays you can read everywhere. So they want to say we use AI, but they are not using AI. They are just using some methods, but they are not creating the culture. The culture needs a lot of work. And the only people that can start working on these cultures are the practitioners. So I always talk to my colleagues sometimes, uh, the people I manage, saying to them, you have to expose yourself in discussing with higher level managers and explaining and becoming more and more involved because in, only in this way we can avoid the problem of finding a situation where data science is just considered a sort of commodity, which is not Absolutely, it's not a commodity. That's a very interesting point you made there, specifically regarding culture. So I was wondering if you could kind of break that down for us. In your opinion, what makes for a healthy data science culture in an organization and what makes for an unhealthy data science culture? The culture in an organization can start from the bottom, but it's absolutely necessary that the management is involved because at a certain point, there is like a filter. So if you start a culture and the culture never reaches the management, many strategical decisions will exclude, for example, data science. Including in the strategical, uh, data science in, into the strategical decisions is the only way to start creating culture. Because in this way, first of all, the whole company, also the people who are not involved, can understand that for the company, data science is an asset. It's not a liability. When I say liability, I, I refer to the fact that sometimes it happens that data scientists are just considered as useless because some tasks are not considered very valuable if we measure the value, like for example, compared to other activities, but they are an asset also in terms of potential. And the only way to show that they are a real asset that can grow and can multiply its value, it's necessary to involve the C-levels and to try, for example, to organize meetings, to organize. Nowadays, there are many possibilities, digital channels. Now, unfortunately, with COVID, there were many limitations, but 
we know that there are many possibilities to organize, for example, Zoom meetings or also channels uh, in particular applications and starting discussing, presenting the results, involving other people, asking and answering questions, asking questions to the stakeholders because the stakeholders sometimes are not aware and it's necessary to go to knock on the door and say, yeah, I am a data scientist. Clearly, when I say this, I refer sometimes there are different layers. Maybe this is more for a manager, but the manager can start saying, I want to introduce myself, my team. We can do this. We can contribute to this. Do you want us to help you? And in my experience, whenever these activities are done correctly, the result is always positive. In some cases, instead, the situation is a segregation of data science. Segregation means that there is a group of people, the nerds, let's call it this way, they are closed in a place, they work on specific projects, nobody tries to understand because it's too complex, they are people like magicians, nobody's interested, they don't talk with other people, they talk only among themselves. This will create pure segregation and non-culture. Culture is exactly the opposite, is the diffusion. This is extremely, extremely problematic in some cases. So I always encourage data scientists to talk to everybody, to try to be available to speak the language of your stakeholder, not your language. You, you, you don't have to pretend to be the one who talks and the one who must be understood. You must pr pretend from yourself that the other people are able to understand you. So you have to do whatever is needed to make them understand you. That's your success. I really like that advice that you gave there. It's all about your audience and it's all about making sure that they're able to understand you and having that kind of bit of respect for your audience in the sense that, yeah, we're doing complex stuff, but I'm going to explain it to you in such a way that you can understand it and that you will be able to understand what I'm doing in turn. So another kind of follow-up question to that. So we talked about some qualities of a good data science culture, but what would you say are some defining qualities or characteristics of a great data scientist that will separate them from just the good data scientists? This is a very interesting question. Thank you. I can summarize the answer by saying that a great data scientist will always try to innovate and not to imitate other solutions. But when I talk about innovation, I don't want to be misunderstood. We don't have to invent every day. Innovation sometimes means, for example, finding new ways to solve problems, uh, finding uh, different approaches to the same problems. The, the, the right way to talk to the people, that's what I was saying before, this can be connected. For example, when talking with the stakeholders, because it's necessary to understand the business context and to find the right way to solve a problem, uh, a great data scientist is the one who tries to wear the right hat. A good data scientist is just a poor listener who just takes some notes and tries to do exactly what 
he understood, he or she understood. In the reality, if you don't change your hat and you don't think with the other person mind, you can never find a good solution. Sometimes I found situations where the requirements were very difficult to collect because they were unclear. So we don't have to think that a great data scientist is like a genius. A great data scientist in a company is a person that thinks that he or she has to interact to maximize the efficiency and the effectiveness of its work and to try to meet all possible requirements. So, of course, as I also said before, learning is extremely important. Great data scientists will never stop learning. If you think that you are done after 30 years, 40 years, if you think that you are done, some people think that they are done after just a few years, well, you are absolutely not a good, probably a very poor data scientist because it's impossible even for a genius to have a complete picture, to complete a career path in just a few years. There are so many things to know, so many possibilities to expand the boundaries and to increase the lateral thinking to, 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 to become more and more involved in the business, to be up to date in terms of technologies, uh, to know more algorithms, to understand how it's possible to improve that learning is not a necessary, it's a mandatory thing. So if you don't consider learning important for your work, and if your employer don't consider learning important for your work, probably there's something wrong and the success can never be reached. And in this case, and data scientists that complains because he, for example, cannot improve uh, his knowledge, can never become a great data scientist. He must probably change his workplace. I know that all the best workplaces encourage to study, to improve the knowledge, to improve also soft skills. So this can make the difference between uh, good and great. I 100% agree with you on that. I believe that if you sign up for a career as a data scientist, you have signed up for a career as a lifelong learner. And I think that really is the beautiful thing about our field. It's different from other quantitatively rigorous fields. Let's just take superficially, for example, an accountant. I feel like accountants, they can kind of go to school, they learn the tricks, they might need to keep up to date on tax code and things like that. And, you know, I worked as a biostatistician and an actuary as well. And I felt like in those scenarios that I never was growing and learning as much as I wanted to. And I feel like this field, because there's so many new advancers, there's so many new ways to solve problems. It's just a very fresh and innovative field to kind of be in. And it really is conducive to a continuous lifelong learning environment. What's up, artists? I would love to hear from you. Feel free to send me an email to theartistsofdatascience at gmail.com. Let me know what you love about the show. Let me know what you don't love about the show. And let me know what you would like to see in the future. I absolutely would love to hear from you. I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting. And you can register by going to bitly.com com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode so i wanted to get into your book a little bit here starting at the top real simple question here what is a model and why do we build them in the first place 
Yes, here we are talking about models for machine learning data science because the, the term model is very flexible. So there are different possible definitions. But in the reality, a model for us is a way to represent a part of the world. Uh, we sometimes imagine that we have a process. This process is outside our boundaries. The only way to interact with the process is to transform the process into something manageable. And the language for doing this is mathematics. So a model is generally a way to transform reality into a mathematical representation, trying in this case, because in machine learning, it's very common to avoid too many limitations, to avoid simplifying too much, but also on the other side, to avoid to uh, create over complex problems. But another very important thing uh, when defining a model is that our goal is not necessarily to describe what we already know, but to make predictions. So a model must become a sort of container of future possibilities. This is very easy to understand if we think about physical laws. It's a little bit more complex when we think about problems where, for example, to classify some outcomes according to some criteria, because there are no specific laws behind. If there were some laws, physical laws, we could use them. Whenever there are no such uh, models existing, we have to create a model. And what we do is making, first of all, an assumption. The first assumption is that there is what is called data generating process. So the data that we are collecting is not coming from a limited data set. This is just sometimes a wrong assumption, but it's coming from a process that can theoretically generate all possible data that belong to a specific problem. And we must be sure that the data that we are collecting belongs to that process. Because if we are not doing this, we risk to create a model that is limited because the model can only be limited to a specific subset or region of this process. For example, imagine that you have to classify cars and you just have pictures of uh, utility cars and then you take a picture of a Formula One car and your model fails to classify it correctly. This is not probably because your model is... Uh, wrong. It's because your data set is wrong, because you haven't represented correctly the data generating process. That is the way we look at the reality. Another thing that is extremely important is a concept called grounding. And this concept can be summarized saying that whatever happens, if you think a connection between input and output in the model, it doesn't matter what happens in between. But what, if something is connected to the, uh, an outcome in the model, it must be connected also to the same outcome in reality. So it can be very easy to understand with very simple models. It becomes extremely complex for complex models, but it's extremely important. A model um, has no fantasy. I, don't misunderstand me when I say this, but uh, a model must find a law that associate correctly, for example, in classification, something that in reality is normally associated, uh, for example, with a specific class. And this process must be always grounded. When the model tries to, not the model, of course, autonomously, but because the model is wrongly trained, start, for example, producing wrong outputs, it's because the grounding is broken. 
So the model is not able to make the right connections and we obtain very wrong results. So a model can be seen like um, an arc, starting from the, the ground, going up to an abstract level where all the abstractions can happen and these abstractions can be extremely complex and then it must return to the ground where the ground truth rely. Thank you very much for sharing that. Yeah, I really enjoyed that part of the book, especially how you open with that, the fact of, you know, what we're trying to model is really just some data generating process. And the way you came at it from first principles, I thought was just very intuitive. So I really enjoyed how you broke that down in your book. So I want to move into now another topic that you cover in your book and really just kind of pick your brain to see if you have any heuristics to share with our audience as to when to use certain scaling techniques. Like for example, like when do we use standard scalar versus robust scalar? When do we use min-max over standard scalar? What heuristics do you use when you are trying to find the appropriate scaling technique to use in your pipeline? Sure. First of all, I have to say that standard scalar, robust scalar, and so on are the names of the classes used in scikit-learn um, because the book uses scikit-learn. So it's helpful also to understand uh, the logic behind this these techniques because using other tools, the names can change. We have to say that data is normally, when we collect a data set that is not, for example, made up of images, but it's made up of different data points, the scale of the data can have completely different values. We need to scale data for many reasons. In some cases, I can make an introductory example to make everybody understand why it's so important. If, for example, you have a measure that is scaled between 0 and 1,000 and another one which is between 0 and 10, but from a physical viewpoint, the minimum and the maximum are exactly the same. If you train just a very simple model, like a linear model, what you obtain is that the feature with the higher variance will dominate the model and you will see a coefficient of the other feature will become smaller and smaller because clearly the other feature is like almost constant when predicting the output. The dominant factor is the other one. So we need to scale to work with the many models to create data sets which are compatible with many models that require, for example, logistic regressions, support vector machines, assumed to have Gaussian data. So standard scalar is a very simple approach to achieve this goal. Standard scalar, also this core scalar called, it's a way to have a data set with a null mean and a standard deviation equal to one. In this case, all the features, and I want to be clear, this uh, operation is feature-wise, so each feature is scaled autonomously. So in the end, we have a covariance matrix, which is not diagonal, but each feature has a unit standard deviation. In this way, the weight, the contribution is proportional to the real information contained in the features. And it's not dominated by the fact that uh, one feature has apparent, let's say, uh, more information content. Just a parenthesis. In information theory, uh, if you check the entropy of uh, the majority of stochastic variables, the entropy is proportional to the variance. 
So clearly, if you have a larger variance, you have more, apparently more information. So what we are doing is just saying we want to avoid that an apparent dominating factor could prevent the other ones to contribute with their information content. Robust scaler is a consequence, exactly a consequence of standard scaling. Unfortunately, when a data set has outliers, you know that the variance is a quadratic measure. So the variance is very influenced by outliers, in particular when these outliers are very far from the majority of other data points. So the result can be a wrong scaling. So in order to avoid the effect of the outliers in the scaling procedure, it's possible to use a robust scaler. Robust scaler, clearly I'm not describing here all the details, but it's not based on computing the standard deviation, but it's based on interquartile range. So it's considered the interquartile range, so between the 25th and 75th percentiles that will contain the majority of samples. And in other words, this kind of approach tries to remove the outliers before scaling. And the effect is a data set that is scaled in a more robust way when there are outliers. In general, if there are no outliers, the result is very similar to a standard scaling. Minmax instead is a a different approach. Minmax is more when the problem requires to scale the data in a range. It doesn't matter the variance itself because consider that the result is generally that the variance is the, the standard deviation is also scaled. So if you are reducing the range, the standard deviation and the variance is proportionally scaled down or vice versa, it can be scaled up. Minmax is uh, generally helpful only in those tasks when we want, for example, to feed other models or other elements in our pipeline that expect to have uh, the value in a specific range and they cannot accept any kind of value outside of the range. For example, if there is a function, a filtering function that accepts the value only between minus one and one or zero and one, a standard scalar normally will try to produce value which are very close to zero, but you can also have values that are outside of the range minus one. So that kind of uh, scaling is much more structural, let's say, uh, than practical. It must be adopted only when it's necessary and can be adopted as a further stage in the process. I mean, it's not necessarily uh, the only way to scale the data. It can be like a, a way to standardize the data again before feeding the data into another system. Just to complete the discussion, when I said that standard scaling operates feature-wise, it means that each feature is considered as autonomous. But there is another technique which is not sometimes very known, which is called whitening. In whitening, instead, what we do is uh, to perform a standardization of the whole data set. So what we want to obtain is a diagonal unit covariance matrix. So it means that, in other words, the covariance matrix that has uh, a number of parameters that uh, is proportional to the square, is uh, the square uh, of the number of features, we have only the values on uh, the diagonal. So we have only variances. This will have a very positive effect on all these models where the computation is proportional, for example, to the number of values in, uh, in the covariance matrix. Uh, whitening is very helpful in uh, many deep learning tasks.
and can really improve the performances of deep learning tasks. The difference clearly is that whitening requires to operate on the whole data set, while standard scaling can operate um, on the single features. But uh, it's helpful that the reader can understand, uh, yeah, the reader, I mean, the student, I would say that, can understand the difference between the, these models and will pick the right one. And whenever something is wrong, it's important to understand how to debug the model to understand why the performances are not as expected. In some cases, for example, it, uh, it's because a standard scaler is used in situations where there are many outliers and they should be filtered out. And if they don't use a robot scaler or they perform a filtering, the result is always uh, not the optimal one. That's something I really enjoyed about your book. You have presented from the theoretical standpoint, you show us the formula, then you show us the implementation using scikit-learn, and then you also have some really well-crafted diagrams that really help us visually understand how these different scaling techniques are affecting our data set. So I really like the way you laid that out in your book. Another topic you cover in your book that I think would be interesting as well, kind of in line with the previous question, is wanting to pick your brain in terms of cross-validation. So with so many methods of cross-validation out there, how can we know which one to utilize for any given scenario? Yes, I will try to remain very compact because this topic is very large. First of all, the reasons behind cross-validations are important to be understood. Cross-validation has two main purposes. One is the fact that sometimes the training set is very small. So if we split it in, into training and test or training, test and validation, we get very small data sets that are not enough to train the models. Another reason is to obtain an unbiased measure of the performances of the model. And this is probably the most important reason nowadays. Let's start one second thinking about the problem. We want to validate the model by considering all possible combinations when the test set is not just selected randomly once, but it can be every part, let's say, of the data set. This problem can be solved in different ways. Clearly, as we are going to see, there are ways which are very drastic. But a very simple way that is very effective is called k-fold. It simply means that we split the data set into k blocks and we train the model using k minus one blocks and we evaluate on the remaining ones. And we repeat this procedure k times. This is also important to understand that cross-validation has a computational cost. And in fact, it's um, normally not used in deep learning for example, because uh, it requires in general to retrain the model k times. And if k is uh, between 5, 10, or sometimes even more, this can be unacceptable. But in many models, this process can be extremely fast. And what we get is an array of measures where we can immediately understand if the model is performing well or not. And in particular, what we can understand is uh, 
if the standard deviation of the values that we obtain is small, so more or less all the faults behave in the same way, or if there is a, a very huge difference in some cases. As I said before, the problem of the data generating process, sometimes uh, we have just a few data points belonging to a region. And if those points are in a fold and this fold is excluded from the training process, clearly the model will have very poor performances when uh, evaluating on that remaining fold. So we can observe sometimes that the model has very high performances in a lot of faults, but there is one where the model has very poor performances, close to 0.5. And this means that uh, clearly uh, there is a problem. In one case, the problem can be, as, as I said, related to the nature of the training set. But another reason that is solved using a modified version called the stratified k-fold is the fact that the classes are unbalanced and they are not well represented in each fold. This will happen many times because we cannot expect always to have perfect data sets. In general, the rule is the data sets are very, very dirty and we need to be prepared to manage this kind of complexity. So stratified k-fold will try to create folds where the, the distribution of the classes is kept as in the original data set. With stratified k-fold, we can immediately check the performances in a very unbiased way and we can see whether the model is performing well, more or less, in each of the fold, or again, if the model is performing bad, and in that case, probably it means that the training set must be integrated, or if the performances are poor in or are under a certain threshold in the majority of faults, it probably means that the model is not, uh, as a low capacity, is not enough to capture the dynamics that are necessary. Other approaches uh, which are much more drastic are the so-called leave one out and leave p out. These two approaches are very dangerous. So I always suggest to be careful with these two approaches. I mean, nothing will happen, but your computer can remain stuck for a very long time because in particular with uh, leave p out. Leave one out simply says, let's try to understand if a model is enough to classify, for example, a certain data set. So what we do is excluding a single data point from the training set and we perform n, if there are n values, n validations, so we have n measures, where the training set is made up of all points but one. This will help immediately understand if your model is underfitting, for example, because if your model has poor performances in LOO, it means that it's underfitting. LOO can easily overfit, but it can never show the opposite. It can never happen that uh, when LOO is very low, it's because uh, there are, there's something wrong. In general, it's because uh, the model is not able to capture the correct dynamics. So uh, there are a lot of, uh, in general, it's not for all the values, but there are a lot of values, a lot of data points that are used for the evaluation where the model uh, produces the wrong wrong classification. So it means that the model, even using the majority of the training set, almost all the training set, is not able to output the right class. To avoid this kind of problem, it's possible to use another approach, which is LPO. But LPO, I invite always the students to be very careful because LPO is based on non-disjoint data sets. So it's based on computing the binomial coefficient of all possible 
subsets, which is proportional to the factorial of the number of samples. And using, it's just like LOO, but instead of using, uh, in this case, a single one for evaluation, there are P ones. But when you compute N over P, the, the binomial coefficient, this can become really, really large. So in some cases can explode, can reach millions. So it's a, a very dangerous method uh, that must be considered only if necessary. And hopefully all the readers know that, for example, in the majority of implementation can compute this factor before starting the process so they, so they can check whether the number is reasonable. And if the number is too large, they can uh, reduce or increase the number of P. Clearly, when P is reduced, we go towards LOO. If we increase it, we have something that is probably useless because in that case, we are training the model with just a few uh, points and we are evaluating on a very large test set. So just to, to conclude, I would say that stratified K-fold is probably the best choice in the majority of cases. LOO can be used to evaluate uh, the capacity of a model if it's enough. But in general, a good data scientist can immediately understand if a model is working properly using a, a stratified K-fold and can make the right decisions uh, to go on uh, thanks to the results provided by this method. You do a really good job in your book that I enjoyed how you presented it again from first principles as well as some compare and contrast and how to implement in scikit-learn. I think it's really good treatment of cross-validation in your book. I want to jump in now to a couple of other topics now. I was wondering if you could share some tips with our audience so that we can be more thoughtful with our feature engineering. Feature engineering uh, is an extremely important part of the process. We need to think about the problem in this way. First of all, in general, when we have a, a data set, uh, the data set is provided, for example, by a certain source. Not all the features are generally necessary for predicting a certain outcome. This is important because only in, really in some cases when we have a very large data sets, we need to have all the features. So one important step is a feature selection. Uh, feature selection is a, a, a fundamental step also to improve the explainability of the model. And nowadays, for example, thanks to techniques like explainable AI, it's possible to find explanations also for models which are not easily interpretable. So it's very important to limit to the features with a very high variance and to try to use these methods to discuss with the business stakeholders so they can immediately understand which are the dominant factors and considering the remaining features, which sometimes have a very limited impact as, let's say, noisy features, which are not really important. On the other side, feature engineering can, can also be extremely helpful to create new features. One field is, for example, when we start using linear models, which is generally a good, a good starting point in many cases. But when we know that we observe that it's impossible to achieve certain performances, it's possible to use feature engineering, for example, to try to create new features by combining the existing features. There are the polynomial regressions, which are based on this idea. In some cases, when we consider the features as independent, we make a mistake because, um, you know, uh, in reality, it's very difficult that all the features are independent. So having the ability to model also the interactions 
of the features and then performing a feature selection can be extremely helpful for the results. And again, I always invite to study and to apply methods of feature importance and XAI if possible to understand the real importance of the feature because these tools are very helpful when discussing with uh, experts who are not familiar with data science, but they can immediately understand whether a feature is, is something surprising, for example, or it's just something that they, everybody is expecting. This is very important, for example, in healthcare, where sometimes a data set can help discover the interaction of different features or a particular feature in driving a result. And this will help move to next analysis to understand why some features are particularly important in some cases. And how about when it comes to tuning our hyperparameters? What can we do or what tips can you share with the audience so that we can be more thoughtful when we're performing hyperparameter tuning? Hyperparameters are probably one of the most important topics, and unfortunately, there are no silver bullets. Normally, when talking about hyperparameters, we first need to understand the difference between uh, the different classes of hyperparameters. And then, of course, we need to try to evaluate how to, to tune them up. For example, there are some hyperparameters like the learning rate that we know is an hyperparameter that in general is uh, relatively small. But there are some techniques, for example, batch normalization, that allow to have larger values. So these kind of parameters can be compensated in some way. Other hyperparameters instead, for example, the strength of our regularization constraint are instead more like capping parameters and they can really change the results completely. So I normally suggest, first of all, understanding how the algorithm works, uh, understanding the role of the hyperparameters. And in, uh, let's say, machine learning, non-deep learning, this is easier. It's a little bit more complex in deep learning because the, the number of hyperparameters can be very large. But it's important to understand how each hyperparameter works so the contribution of the hyperparameter. And the best way is once we understand and we have an idea of the possible values, right now the best way is grid search, which is a way of, uh, let's say, brute force search, but it can be optimized. But it's a way to look for different combinations because one thing to remember is that hyperparameters, just like features, are never completely independent. So when you consider different values, sometimes you, you find a good value for one hyperparameter, and, but this will completely change the effect of the others. So grid search allows to evaluate different combinations. It can be very, very expensive if the number of combinations is very high. That's why there is a, an approach called a random grid search, which is very used in deep learning that consists in uh, trying first to have a coarser view. Then when there is a good region where some hyperparameters seem more promising, it's possible to zoom in and continue this process in a more randomic way, but zooming in every time into the region where the best hyperparameters normally lie. And this way clearly cannot reduce completely the burden, the computational burden, but can reduce the, I mean, at least uh, can, can, can avoid a complete search of all combinations. I normally suggest to consider the default values as the values which are generally valid for the majority of tasks 
But for example, I make an example based on regularization using L2 norm. It's helpful not to start directly by considering the necessity of having a regularization. So for example, in scikit-learn, logistic regression has already a constant equal to one for the penalty L2. But this is not necessarily true. I mean, in some cases, it's not necessary. So I always suggest to start with a very small value, also zero, and then checking the results. And if we observe overfitting, for example, in that case, we can increase that value and we can find the optimal one. So the default values must be considered as good choices because they are based normally on different analysis performed on many data sets, but they are not necessarily the right choice. So if you default every time on, on um, you use the default values, you, you never change the default values. In some cases, you can never reach some results. We have seen some results obtained thanks to uh, the usage of uh, slightly different values. Clearly, this is a very long topic, so it's very difficult to synthesize everything. But I think that uh, it's very important understanding the nature and understanding also that hyperparameters are not independent. So it's important to, when tuning up an hyperparameter, to tune up also the correlated ones. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great point. It is a really deep topic. And I think you've given our listeners a lot to think about. And hopefully that could help them become more uh, mindful and more, you know, thoughtful in the way they perform their hyperparameter tuning. So towards the end there, you mentioned regularization. So I was wondering if you could offer us some heuristics for determining whether we should use regularization. And if we decide to use some regularization technique, how can we ensure that we're using the correct one? Yes, regularization in general is a technique where we try, at least in the classical way, we add a term, a penalty term to the cost function. And the reason of some techniques, like for example, the famous L2 or Ridge or Tikhonov regularization is to avoid overfitting, for example, and reduce uh, the effect of collinearities in linear regressions. The reason for reducing the, the effect of overfitting is that there is a, a problem called bias variance trade-off. So in some cases, the model can become really almost unbiased or can reduce the bias, but it can increase the variance. In other words, this is equivalent to say that the model is overfitting, so it's not able to generalize. So using the L2, we are just imposing a constraint to increase the bias of the model, but with the price that we pay is to reduce, is for reducing the variance. So the solution is suboptimal because clearly when we add this term to the cost function, the minimum that we obtain is not the optimal minimum, but the result is a function which is more able to generalize. So L2 is in general the best choice in the majority of machine learning models. And it's helpful to tune up, of course, the strength of the regularization, because if it's too strong, there's a risk of biasing too much. If it's too small, the bias is too small. And I mean, the effect is negligible. In linear regression, when ridge regression was proposed, that kind of regularization had also the effect of the collinearities. The reason of this is purely mathematical, and uh, it's related to the fact that uh, if you just solve the problem of a linear regression that can be solved in closed form, there is an inversion of a matrix that can become singular when there are collinearities. 
And the effect of the regularization term is to add a small constant to the diagonal of this matrix. So this matrix is not singular anymore and can be inverted. So this can increase the numerical stability of the system. Another way to perform regularization is to use, for example, the L1 norm. I need to be precise. All norms at the end of the day will behave more or less in the same way, but the effect is proportional to the p-value of the norm. So we are not interested normally in the L0 norm or in normally higher level norms. Generally, we use L1 and L2. L1 is the most common method also called the lasso to perform automatic feature selection. The reason is very similar to L2, but the difference is that in L1, the coefficients, which are very small, are pushed to zero. So the L1 norm will force these coefficients to become effectively zero. So in this case, the result of this regularization is to remove all those features whose contribution is not important for the prediction. Clearly, in some cases, it's possible to use both norms, and uh, the combination is called elastic net. This is very common when we want to perform feature selection, and also we want to prevent overfitting. And this is very common in machine learning. When we work instead with uh, deep learning, there are also other techniques. In deep learning, it's possible to use L2, but the effects are sometimes a little bit more difficult to control. There are in deep learning techniques like dropout, for example, which is an extremely interesting technique that can avoid overfitting by limiting the capacity of the model, but by creating a lot of sub-models. It's like uh, splitting a model, which is a deep network with sometimes millions of parameters, into many sub-models randomly that will be trained generally on specific regions. So the result is that each sub-model will become more and more expert on a specific region and the overall model will never overfit. It's obviously, it's important to control also the parameters here the, because the dropout is based on the a random selection of the input of a layer and putting them to zero. So a small value as very limited effect, a very large value, of course, can create a model that is clearly underfitting for sure. A thing that is important is that sometimes I read about early stopping also as a regularization technique because regularization sometimes is to avoid overfitting. So you train the model until the model is performing well and then you stop when the model starts performing badly because the easiest way to check if a model is overfitting is to observe the training curve. And if you observe the training curve, Normally, you see that an overfitting model has a training curve that goes down and reaches almost zero, while the validation curve, after reaching a minimum, then starting increasing again, and this curve is called the U-curve. So the idea of early stopping is to stop simply the training before or just before the U-curve. Honestly, I listened to this suggestion from... Uh, Andrew Eng, and I absolutely second it because early stopping is a way to cap the model and it's a way to prevent any possibility to perform better. So it should be considered like a last resort, not considered as the best choice in general. It's preferable to try alternatives before only if there are no other chances using early stopping as regularization technique. Thank you for that. And I know we spent a lot of time 
getting into the foundational concepts of machine learning. So I really appreciate you sharing your insights into that. But your book covers so much and there's so much great content and you present everything from a very first principles approach. And, you know, in your book, you cover everything from the fundamentals, which we spoke about today. You even go into semi-supervised learning time series, generalized linear models. You go into neural networks, deep convolutional neural network, reinforcement learning, deep belief networks. It's a really comprehensive book. And I really, really applaud the effort that you put into presenting these things from a first principles perspective. But one thing that I don't think really gets enough coverage in many books or in many literature or blog posts or what have you out there is what to do once the model is shipped into production. So once we fit a model and ship it, does our work as a data scientist stop there? You're right. This is a topic that's not very well covered. It should deserve more space. The answer is absolutely no. Nowadays, we are moving into the direction of applying the DevOps approach also to machine learning, the data scientist or the machine learning engineer can never consider his or her work handed after the model is in production. Only when the model in production is tested continuously, it's possible to understand if the model is working properly. And in that case, the goal of the data scientist is just to check if uh, the performance is that were initially evaluated using a data set are now the same using a real data. And sometimes it happens that these performances can, can change. So some models need retraining, first of all. And retraining a model is not something that can be done completely automatically. I mean, it can be automatically, can be done automatically, but it's necessary to observe the results of this retraining. Sometimes there are surprises when retraining some models. For example, uh, it's necessary to increase the capacity of a model. For example, a model, when retrained, uh, can show bad performances on other samples which are excluded, or the training set is becoming too large. So there are many problems where the data scientist and the machine learning engineer must be involved, and they can never stop thinking that their work is done. Another problem, for example, is the fact that the data generating process can change. So this happens very often. A model is trained starting from some data, but after a while, the data changes because of uh, external factors. And thinking that the model must continue working properly is absolutely ridiculous. So it's necessary to involve these people in uh, understanding whether it's necessary a change. I also invite data scientists to monitor the process, for example, to understand if it's possible to improve the performances so a data scientist must never forget that the final product is a piece of software and optimizing a piece of software is a never-ending process. So the data scientist must observe if the results are really good, if the response time is good, if it's necessary retraining, if it's necessary to tune up, to change something, to optimize, or for example, to work again on different versions of the models to find better results. And in my experience, for example, working with different countries, we can observe very huge differences. So without a continuous approach, which is the, the approach of uh, the model ops or DevOps applied to machine learning, for example, it's impossible to guarantee a service that is uh, reliable over time. So you are absolutely right. This deserves much more attention. 
So what are some things that we need to monitor and track once a model is deployed? Let's say let's start from the perspective of the data generating process. What are some indications that we can look for to signal whether or not this underlying data generating process has changed from what we had initially modeled? Well, we observe uh, clearly some bad performances and there should be a sort of debugging in uh, checking which samples are misclassified, for example. Let's suppose that we are working on face recognition. Clearly, it can happen that we have excluded some people or we have excluded people with hats because the picture were without hats and now they are wearing hats. Or, for example, uh, thinking about covid we have excluded people with masks. So we have a model that works perfectly, but now all the people wear a mask and it's impossible to recognize them anymore. So what we observe is that the model is performing poorly with respect to a specific population. At that point, the process is uh, extremely important. It's necessary to understand the population that is necessary to sample from, and it's necessary to understand the weight of the, this population with, with respect to the, the existing one. And if uh, this process is done correctly, we can find a proportional number of samples. We can enrich our process. We can retrain the model. Because one thing to remember is that uh, many models like uh, neural networks are very powerful in learning, but they are also very fast in forgetting. So uh, it's important to create a more comprehensive uh, process where there is a representation also of this percentage of new samples of this population and then performing the retraining and observing how the performances are affected. So it's very easy to see that the model is not performing correctly. Sometimes we can just skip this step saying the model is performing badly, but in a real debugging, we need to check whether and when. So we have to take the samples where the classification is wrong and after checking certain number of samples or using automatic techniques uh, like clustering uh, or something like this, we can immediately understand that there is a group of particular samples with some specific features which are not classified correctly. And this means that they are not represented in uh, the training uh, data set. And do you have any type of resources that the interested listener can go check out? Any keywords that they could use in their searches for getting up to speed on this aspect of the pipeline? Well, they have to, in this case, I think that is helpful to, to look at, yes, exactly, model ops is the new way to, to look at this process, but it's important for the team managers, I think, in this case, to create an integration of different roles. So data engineering, data scientists, uh, machine learning engineering, business analysts, all these people must become to a team. They must work together and each of them has a responsibility and some responsibilities are peculiar. So it's important that the culture of creating a process that is completed, let's say it's self-contained, but at the same time, every part of this process has specific responsibilities like football team or any kind of team where everybody has a specific responsibility is fundamental. So I suggest to study DevOps in general because having some knowledge about standard software development is fundamental. Even sometimes data scientists don't think they are developing software. 
this is absolutely wrong. They are developing software and they have to understand that a software can become valuable only when it goes into production. And so all the techniques that have been developed now to create pipelines and to automate these processes, continuous integration, continuous deployment, automating uh, the tests and checking the results, creating a real-time alert systems, all these elements are necessary. Even if you are not directly hands-on, you are not working directly with them, you have to understand their role. And you have to be ready to accept also the presence of people with this kind of background in your team and to leverage their knowledge to guarantee the results. Thank you very much for that. So I want to shift gears here now. I'm wondering, do you consider data science and machine learning to be an art or purely a hard science? Thanks for this question. I really love this question. Data science is a science for sure. There is mathematics behind and we never, we should never forget this. But I consider also mathematics a mix of science and art. When I say art, I don't mean pure fantasy. I mean that sometimes the way we solve some problems, the way we address the problems has a lot of creativity behind. And this creativity can make the difference between repeating the same task or trying to do something different and finding real innovation. So I consider, definitely consider data science a mix of the two. And the ability of the data scientists, I, I normally, sometimes I consider crazy for this, but I often repeat that the data scientist must think like an artist when finding a solution, when creating a piece of code. But of course, also an artist Imagine an architect, for example, has to know physical laws because otherwise a dome will collapse. So it's clearly hard science, but it's not purely hard science. And there is room for creativity, a lot of room for creativity. So talk to us about creativity, curiosity. What do these two things, what does creativity and curiosity, what roles do they play in being successful as a data scientist? And how can somebody who doesn't see themselves as creative actually understand that they can be creative and that you know, the work that they're doing is creative? Everybody can be creative. I think that creativity is not elitarian. The real problem here is that sometimes when you start working, you start working using routines, which are helpful to avoid the problem of uncertainty. So you, you repeat the same things because you are sure about the results. But on the other side, this approach can lead to boring activities, which can drive them to lose interest. So creativity means finding new ways sometimes to solve the same problems. And curiosity is a compliment because when you think about the way you solve a problem, you, at least considering not only data science, but in general, many solutions have been found by considering analogies. So I always invite people to think by analogies. If a problem has been solved in another scenario using a different situation, a different, different structure, different environment, but there can be an analogy. Curiosity is the way to think this analogy as a possibility. And creativity is the way we can transform that analogy into something new. So even the most repetitive task can become very interesting if you think about a way to change, to transform the boring activities into something that, for example, can be automated so you can work on other tasks. Or, for example, when you can find new ways 
to solve solutions, or you can find a ways to improve performances of existing systems. So creativity and curiosity are the key for everything, not for data science, in my opinion. And clearly, as we are talking about data scientists, I always repeat that curiosity must be directed towards everything. You must not be segregated. Being segregated, thinking that you have to work only with your tools, only with your topics, is a way to end your career immediately. The only way you can really expand yourself is to be curious. So to learn new processes, to learn how other people work, to talk to other people, to understand how your business works. Even if you don't have all the knowledge, you can acquire some basic knowledge. And at that point, you can discover also new possibilities where you can apply data science, for example. Thank you very much for that. I think you and I are a couple of peas in a pod. I share the exact same perspective as you do with respect to that. So I think one thing that's important for data scientists to realize is that we play an integral role in the organization, in the business that we are a part of. So it's not enough just to have that hard technical skill with respect to mathematics and coding, but we also need to have a strong business acumen and a product sense. So in your opinion, how could data scientists develop their business acumen and cultivate a product sense? I totally agree. And this is a real challenge. It's very important for data scientists, aspiring data scientists, and also sometimes senior data scientists to become more business-oriented. The only way to become more business-oriented, that doesn't mean that you have to forget your background. It simply means that you are thinking that what you are doing must have a business value. Otherwise, it's just an exercise and nobody is willing to pay for an exercise. And the only way to develop this ability, it's related to the culture of the company. For example, a good way is to participate to meetings. As I said before, in some meetings, you have always the chance to talk, but you have to understand the other people in the meeting And you have to understand that your contribution must be fully compatible. If you think that in a meeting where there are, for example, marketing people or senior management people, and you start talking about capacity of a model or regularization, they just smile and probably they forget everything after a few seconds. So the only thing to develop this ability is to ask for feedback to these people about everything, to ask questions, and to think that your language as translator is always the stakeholder's language. So you must become a translator every time you have a concept in mind. If you are able to express that concept in a language that is uh, understandable by the business stakeholders, not only you increase the chance to be successful, but This is the only way in some cases to be successful because when you have, for example, to justify the need of budget and you are not able to define the business value of a solution, you don't receive the budget. So you fail. And at that point, there's nothing. I mean, you can talk about the beauty of a model. You can talk about uh, the art of data science and whatever but you don't have the budget and so you, don't, you, you, you cannot go on. So that's a, a very pragmatic viewpoint, but being pragmatic in, in data science is normally a winning element. So I always invite in particular the junior data scientists to start as soon as possible to discuss with senior stakeholders, to present to them 
uh, to become more and more confident when uh, discussing, also to answer questions which are not strictly related. And this is something that requires a sort of uh, training, an ongoing training. It's not something that can be learned in one day or in one week. It's something that requires training, but it's important that the managers allow their junior employees to expose themselves in these situations. Otherwise, they never uh, have the possibility and sometimes they remain stuck in a position which is purely technical. Thank you very much for sharing that insight. So speaking of juniors and you know, maybe up-and-coming aspiring data scientists, what advice or insight can you share with them, uh, with these people who are breaking into the field and they're looking through these job postings and then some of them seemingly want the abilities of an entire team wrapped up into one person and they end up feeling dejected or discouraged from applying. Do you have any words of encouragement or insight that you can share with these people? Well, I normally ask this question during interviews when I understand that this is quite common in some cases. But what I try to explain is, first of all, that a team is made up of people and each person has peculiarities. So belonging to a team doesn't mean that you disappear as an individual contributor, but you become peculiar to your team. What I normally say is that you have always the possibility to become unique, which is the next step. So if you increase your domain knowledge in some cases, if you become more and more reliable, you can really become unique in the team. So being part of a team is absolutely necessary because it's impossible to think about large projects without teams. But at the same time, it's important to say that every single person has to develop as a component. And this component, let's say a sort of team inside. So this small team inside each single person must be developed. And at that point, that person can really become a a fundamental pillar. When this happens, the team becomes absolutely winning and there's no way to stop such a team. When this doesn't happen, it's because exactly in that team, every person doesn't feel like part of the team or it feels too much as part of the team and uh, uh, without an identity. So I try always to say, you have an identity. I normally talk to everybody and I try to understand the peculiarities of each single person and I try to emphasize these peculiarities. So to help other people to understand how these new members can be really helpful and whenever they have to trust these new members, and whenever they have to help, for example, them. So by doing this, uh, which is really something that can be continuous activity, it's possible to avoid this kind of problem. Clearly, it's not, I mean, in some cases, it's impossible because uh, some people will never arrive to the certain stage of uh, the interviews because they don't show any ability to work in teams. And if you want to be a pure freelancer, you can try, but also being a freelancer is a risk because also freelancers have to work in teams in some cases. So unfortunately, some people are filtered out simply because when they discuss about themselves, they don't emphasize their ability to interact with different people. So I try when I can to underline this concept. 
So to drive the discussion in this direction and to help the new hires to understand immediately that interacting is the key. So last question here before we jump into a quick lightning round. What's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? I think that there are for sure more worthy people to learn from. One thing that I always say that I never limited myself. I always tried to expand myself and I always accepted challenges. So my character is that I'm not scared about new challenges. Clearly, after many years, I learned that overpromising is dangerous. So I never overpromise or I try to never overpromise, but I never try to limit myself or I never said I don't want to do this because I'm scared. I always loved learning whenever it was necessary. Every new experience for me was an opportunity. Sometimes some experiences were short, sometimes some experiences were longer. But if I have to look in my past, there are no bad experiences. Even the bad experiences, because it's normal, I consider them as part of my evolution. And if I have to think about myself, this is something I was discussing sometimes. I never limited myself. When I received some proposals, honestly, I felt sometimes a little bit scared about the risks. But I said, okay, I want to take the risk because only if you take some risks, of course, with all the possible measures, you can reach some results and you can gain the right confidence and you can also obtain better results. But of course, I don't consider myself as, as a, an example for other people. So I prefer, I invite to read the biographies of real worthy people. Hey man, I definitely think you are a worthy person to learn from. Thank you so much for that answer. That was very beautifully put. I 100% agree with you. You know, sometimes you have to do the things that are frightening, that are hard, that are challenging, that push you out of your comfort zone, so to speak, because when you pursue those type of activities and those type of tasks, that really is where the most growth happens, both professionally and personally. So thank you so much for sharing that. Let's jump into a quick lightning round here, starting off with the first question. What do you believe that other people think is crazy? Sometimes people think that what I did, for example, in, in my past, many decisions, the time that I dedicated to my patients was a crazy thing. And I would say that sometimes I also consider this a crazy thing, but it's something that, uh, yeah, some people consider crazy. I, I dedicate a lot of time uh, to things that uh, in certain moments of the life uh, probably are not extremely important, like reading, uh, studying, uh, working. Uh, when you are very young, it can be something that is considered crazy. If you could have a billboard put up anywhere, what would you put on it and why? Well, I take a lot of notes. So I would like to have a billboard to put notes everywhere. But on uh, the other side, I prefer to remember interesting quotes, for example, by heart. I never write down the quotes. I repeat them. I learned some quotes in my life. And sometimes when uh, I go to bed or when I wake up in the morning, I repeat them. It's like an automatic procedure, like a mantra. And this will help me to go on and... Sometimes it gives me new ways to look at the world. Very interesting, kind of like affirmations for yourself. So what is your most favorite quote? Or rather, what's a quote that you woke up this morning and told yourself? 
Well, I have a quote that I use for myself, and the quote is, the road is always ahead. I repeat this quote many, many times. I like that one. Who's that by? Is that by anybody in particular? Is that? I think no, honestly. I think probably by myself, but it's a quote that uh, can be found in many, many books and many lessons. So I consider this the result of uh, all the studies, all the readings. So I don't consider it mine, but yeah, I never read it, honestly. But in some cases, I read about never stopping, always go on. And I translated this in uh, this quote. I like that. There's a the Stoic philosopher Seneca. He had, he says something to the effect of it doesn't matter who the author is as long as the quote is good and that if anything that is true becomes mine. So very interesting yeah. viewpoint. I enjoy that. So what's an academic topic outside of data science that you think every data scientist should spend some time researching? Well, for sure, mathematics. I will have uh, neuroscience, for example, and psychology, cognitive psychology. These topics are extremely important. They are not only important, they are fascinating and they can really change the way we look at the world. And they propose a lot of questions where that can help us understanding the power of what we have right now and the power of what we have to achieve if we want to reach the same level of animals and human beings in terms of intelligence, of course. That's absolutely fascinating. I'm glad you said that because if anybody was to ask me that same question, I would say pretty much the same thing. I'm a really big into neuroscience and cognitive psychology and just understanding the nature of the human mind, both biologically, physically, and kind of in the more abstract sense. So just understanding the brain, understanding its structure, understanding how the different pieces work together to help you better understand your thought process is once you kind of have a grasp on that, even just a little grasp, your life can become so much more enjoyable, I would say. So what would be the number one book, fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend our audience read? And what was your most impactful takeaway from it? I would recommend two books, not one. Please accept this. I want to recommend one book that I consider extremely interesting is Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse. It's a real lesson how to go on and how it's possible to change the life, the difficulties. And uh, it's a very, very small book. It can be read in a few hours, but there are some pages that will remain stuck in your mind forever. There is the power of the mind, the power of the will. And this is a fantastic example. Another book that I really love is a book written by a cognitive, I would say, scientist, because it's not necessarily, I mean, it's more philosopher, mathematics, uh, it's Gödel, Escher and Bach by Hofstadter. Uh, I read that book a lot of time ago. I consider like real masterpiece that put together art, logic, that was artificial intelligence for that time because the book is very old. But if you read it, you can never stop reading it because it's so interesting in creating these connections and helping you understand the power of these connections that you will continue reading and probably reading it for the whole life. I'll definitely be adding those to the show notes and I'll check those out myself. So if we could somehow get a magic telephone that allowed you to get in contact with 18-year-old Gazeppi, what would you say to him? That's a very hard question. I would say go on whatever it happens. Never stop or be scared by the unknown. And for sure, you are going to fall down, but just take your time and then restart. 
I wouldn't say to change anything. What song do you currently have on repeat? I have many songs. In this case, I don't have a single song, but I have many songs that sometimes are associated with my mood. Uh, sometimes I just repeat them. So I, I don't want to name a single one, but I would like to say that there are sometimes some songs which are associated to specific situations that happen in my life. So when I re-listen to the song, it's because uh, maybe I want to, to feel in that way. I love many kinds of different music, so it depends. So I don't want to say a name because honestly, if I say something, I will exclude other things which have the same value for me. But yeah, I, I, I listen according to my mood and according to what I want to achieve in that moment. For example, I mean, you, you asked me an example. I will tell you an example. I had a fantastic experience in my life when uh, there was a karaoke. I didn't participate because I'm terrible, but there was the song, a uh, very old song, American Pie by Don McLeod, that I really love. It's a very old song, but that song is so intense in certain moments that opened my imagination. So whenever I, I listen to that song, it's like moving in that period, in that moment, and it's a sort of uh, yeah, flashback for me. Absolutely love it. I'm very much the same way. So where could people find your book and how can people connect with you online? The books are all available on Amazon and uh, in almost any bookstore. In some cases, also physical bookstores, but in general, all uh, digital bookstores. There are also Chinese and Polish translations in some cases. People connect with me generally uh, through digital channels. Uh, LinkedIn, for example, is uh, one of the main channels. I also use Twitter a little bit less because uh, I don't like the limitations because I prefer to write longer posts. Um, I also love uh, going to conferences and events where I meet many people, but unfortunately, uh, in this period, uh, uh, I had to limit all these activities. But thanks to uh, this limitation, I had the possibility to get in touch with a lot of people through digital channels. And uh, this was uh, an extremely interesting thing for me because I met many new people. I'm cr creating uh, new relationships, even if they are more virtual, but they have the same intensity in some cases of real relationships. Giuseppe, thank you so, so much for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us about your book, to share your insights with us. I encourage everyone listening to go out and get a copy of Giuseppe's book, Mastering Machine Learning Algorithms. It is super comprehensive, presents a lot of the topics from a ground up approach. Uh, highly recommend it. Again, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking time out of your schedule to be here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Likewise, it was a pleasure. 